Before we return to John chapter 12, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you as your people this morning. People who need to be changed. But Lord, often you offer us something that we don't think we need. Because we need more grace and mercy. Lord, there is nothing that I can say this morning that will change the heart of one person. We pray, send down your Holy Spirit. May he bear witness to our hearts of the great things that you have accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we also pray for mercy. We pray for mercy for the Bingenheimers. Lord, we pray that you bless them. Lord, I am so thankful for this church who has rallied the troops of the kingdom to come alongside our brothers and sisters who have lost everything. Lord, give them hope that their treasure is not of this world, but is in heaven with you. Lord, we lift up John Michael this morning. Lord, we ask you to heal him. We ask you to supernaturally heal him this morning. Relieve him of his pain. Lord, we lift up Jonathan Pence. We ask you to heal him. Lord, give him wisdom on how to proceed. Lord, may you bless them. May they know that you are with them. Lord, we lift up Bill Moore, who's almost debilitated by his back. Lord, may, your, may this surgery prove effective for him. We lift up Cynthia Jaqua. Lord, give her doctors wisdom and the eyes to see what they need to see. Lord, we lift up Doug Hay. May you bless him. And Lord, the same, in the same prayer, we are thankful that Hudson Pence is here this morning. We are thankful that John Sidney Sullivan is here this morning. Lord, you have heard our prayers. Lord, we lift up Chandler Stingle and her baby. Keep both of them healthy. Lord, we pray for our pastoral search committee. May they do the work that you have put before them with wisdom and truth and righteousness and injustice. Lord, may there be a peace and harmony between them. 
And Lord, may they do your will for this church so that this church may be a light to this community. Lord, we pray for the RUF ministry at Ole Miss as they search for a new minister. Lord, bless them. Bless that campus. May the ministry of RUF prove to be fruitful in bringing the next generation to the foot of the cross of Christ. Lord, we ask you to bless Mark and Liz Scheibe in their missionary work in Ireland. Lord, bless them and their family. May they continually remember that they are not alone in their ministry, but that we labor with them. Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray that wars will cease. Lord, we pray that you return with haste. We pray because you hear us. Lord, hear us this morning. In the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I leaned over and told Jessica this morning, I'm going to have to start pre-approving Blake's Sunday school messages because his opening question is my exact same opening question this morning. If I asked you the question, why did Jesus die? How would you respond? If I asked you the question, why did Jesus become incarnate and go to the cross? How would you respond? Well, I posed this question this week to the youth group as a, as a trial test. And, and I asked them, is the only way that you would answer that question that he died for our sins? It's okay. It's okay if that's your answer. That is a correct answer. Theologically, yes, Jesus came to die for our sins. This is called penal substitution. Christ died in our place. He died the death we deserve. He received God's judgment that we deserve because of our sin. So yes, that is a correct answer. But what else? What else did Jesus come to do? Because there's a whole lot more. Gustav Alin was the bishop in the Church of Sweden, and he authored a very important work entitled Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. In this work, he made a series of contributions to the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He, for the first time, developed a rich motif of the entire Bible, something that we have benefited from greatly because he developed this motif for the first time of this divine warrior that Jesus was who came to save his people from their enemy. Although Aline's work was 
almost con- completely of the New Testament. This is a theme, a motif that we see through all of Scripture. We see this in the Song of Moses of Exodus 15, of how God saved his people from their oppressors. Typologically, we see this in 1 Samuel 17, where David defeats Goliath. Christology, we see this in Psalm 110, where David's son will rule from his throne with his scepter. And we see this prophetically in Daniel 7, when the Son of Man will come in the clouds and proclaim his reign. However, even with all of these, we can go back even farther in the biblical text to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden as God cursed Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And the serpent, mind you, was just a mouthpiece for Satan. God God also promised them victory. For God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We are promised Jesus. We are promised one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. Last week, I quoted from Kevin DeYoung's new children's storybook Bible, The Biggest Story Storybook, which is an expansion of his earlier work, The Biggest Story Bible. And in this work, David Young follows this motif, this warrior God motif, this Christus victor, and he calls Jesus himself the head crusher. And the truth of the matter is, without Jesus, we will remain in our sins. But it also is true, without Jesus, we would be under the oppressive power of Satan himself. This is our dire situation before us this morning. Not only does Jesus go to the cross to save us from our sins, Jesus saves us from the enemy who's oppressing us. We need a Savior, someone greater than ourselves, one who stands in our place, but we also need a king because without our king, we are helpless. For not only can we not overthrow this ruler who has incaptivated us, who's enslaved us, but without the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, we do not even know how enslaved we are. What this passage reveals to us this morning is that Jesus is the righteous king. Jesus is the one who defeats our enemy. He is the one who stands beside us. He is the one who defends us. And as I've said before, he is our King David who defeats our Goliath. Because if our story is true, we are cowardly Israel who's too scared to fight the enemy. But God in his great love for us came to us 
to meet us in our deepest need. He came to defeat death itself. And this is where we come to our passage this morning. Jesus has revealed he is the one who possesses this power. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the great hinge in John's gospel. He is revealed. He is God's Messiah, the only one who has power over death. And this is vitally important for us to see that this morning. And it's also what's very difficult for us to see in this passage. But what I want us to see is that these scriptures reveal what God's people need most. It's God himself. But we must ask ourselves this question. Who is this Jesus? In this passage, we're introduced to two different crowds. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the third crowd that comes in verse 20. But I want us to, to look at these two different crowds because both crowds have a different view of who Jesus is as their king. But I want us, what I also want us to see is that both of these crowds wanted to crown Jesus in a different way. There's a great contrast here. Just as we saw with the contrast between Mary and Judas, we see a great contrast between these two crowds. One wanted to coronate Jesus and overthrow Rome. And one wanted to come and confess Jesus because he was their only hope. In England, the coronation of a new king or queen has been the same ceremony for over 900 years. The ceremony always takes place at Westminster Abbey in London. There, the service is conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The coronation of a new sovereign follows after months of preparation, following a, a period of mourning for the passing of the last sovereign and results in a huge festival organized for this ceremony. Those present are representatives of the Houses of Parliament, Church and State, Prime Ministers and leading citizens from the Commonwealth, and representatives from every country. And during this ceremony, the sovereign takes this coronation oath. The sovereign overtakes the rule according to law to exercise justice and mercy and promises which is symbolized by the four swords on their crown, to maintain the Church of England. And the archbishop gets up and asks all of these questions. They first ask, are you willing to take this oath? Then they ask, will you, to your power, cause law and justice and mercy to be exceeded, to be executed in all of your judgments? This is the same ceremony that has been taking on for nine hundred years. Royal feasts, royal regala, foreign dignitaries, many preparations. And this is not what we see in this coronation of Jesus. Jesus is coming to be pronounced king over his people. 
But this is what we read in verse 12. The next day a large crowd came that had come to the feast that heard about Jesus, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it. This crowd we are actually first introduced to in John eleven fifty five. This crowd came to prepare themselves for the Passover. And if we were to ask this crowd, who is Jesus? What do you think they would have said? Their actions are a pretty good indication of what they thought. Because here in John's Gospel, this isn't the first time that this crowd has come to Jesus. But this is the first time that they came with palm branches. Sinclair Ferguson says that palm branches were like their national flags. And as Blake taught last week in Sunday school, as indicated by the coins minted in the Jewish Revolution, Palm trees served as the national symbol in Second Temple Judaism. These palm branches were like their national flags. But palm branches were only supposed to be used in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're at the Feast of the Passover. So these palm branches are not being used in a religious way at all. These palm branches are being used in a very political way. This crowd that is in Jerusalem saw Jesus coming, and it's exactly what you might think it is. It's a political party. It's a political rally. Just like the Republicans and the Democrats come meet as a group and wave their flags when their leader comes on stage. Or whether we wave our flags at a parade on the 4th of July. Or very much like at the Olympic ceremony, when the, each country's teams are walking in and waving their crowns. This is a political kingdom. This is what the people wanted. And this is what the people tried to do back in John 6. They tried to seize Jesus and make them their king. But what we are told over and over is Jesus does not want to be this type of king. For as we see in John 6, Jesus withdrew from them so that they could not bind him. This group in Jerusalem wanted Jesus to be their king because all they could see is a king who would liberate them from Rome. And so they quote, here, Psalm 118, which is used to describe a festive procession coming into Jerusalem, which says, save us, we pray. The Hebrew transliteration is Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Their expectation is a king who will overthrow them from their enemies. But the only enemy they had in sight was Rome. 
And this is where Jesus gives them his first political lesson in royal politics. They wanted a king who would ride in triumph. They wanted a king who would ride on a valiant war horse. And this is where Jesus rejected their type of king. For Jesus rode in on a donkey. This is what it says in verses 14 to 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. A donkey, as described by Andreas Kossenberger, says, It was considered to be an animal of peace in contrast to war. By this, Jesus is clearly conveying a notion of humility, not a notion of war. This crowd had so combined their view of what they thought God's Messiah was supposed to be with their view of what they wanted him to be that they could no longer see Jesus for who he said he was, even though he was right in front of them, even though he had been teaching them for years. What they wanted was different than what God wanted. And we have to ask ourselves, are we doing this to Jesus? Have we done what this crowd has done? Do we make Jesus fit into our box of our expectations? Or do we receive Jesus of who he really is? Do we use Jesus to approve our agendas? Whether it's personal, political, or evangelical. Do we slap Christian on whatever we do so that we can feel good about what we are doing? Or do we follow the Jesus of Scripture? The Jesus who God presents to us. Or do we use Jesus to wage our political wars? Because sometimes we use Jesus to ride against our enemies and bring fear, to bring oppression, to show our sinful neighbors that there's no place for their sin, rather than riding in with peace, love, and humility, like the politics of Christ and his kingdom. Jesus did come as a conquering king. But he came with humility, subjecting himself for his people. But here's the great vision. Jesus came for more than conquering Rome. He came for the whole world. Jesus came to establish a kingdom that would reign over the nations, that would reign with grace in the hearts of his followers and reign with peace that far surpasses anything that we could have imagined. Jesus came to save us from our sins, but Jesus also came to conquer 
Satan. The spiritual powers of this world. But Jesus didn't want a political crown. Jesus' crown was a crown of thorns as he hung on the cross. Because what the people wanted was a king who looked like them. And Jesus says, no. I am the king that you need. Is this Jesus your king? Is this king the one you have sworn your allegiance to above all other allegiances? Because here's the reality of the scene. This isn't who the people really wanted. They wanted a king who'd help them then and now in a way they didn't even understand. They shouted, Hosanna, save us. But then when they realized what Jesus was really about, then when they realized this is a king who's going to die for them, we read in John chapter 19, their shouts change from Hosanna to save us to we have no king but Caesar. And this is the inscription that was put upon the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. On this Sunday, a thousand years ago, Jesus rejected their vision of the Messiah when he rode into Jerusalem. But on Friday, the crowd rejected God's vision of this Messiah, and they said, crucify him. No one, no one in this crowd, even the disciples, saw Jesus for who he really was. This is what we read in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him and he had done to him. And we too must ask ourselves, Holy Spirit, reveal to us, help us understand what Jesus has really done for us. He's not a king who gains for himself but gives himself. He's not a king that deploys people to protect himself. He deploys himself to protect his people. He's a king that makes himself poor so that his people might be rich. He is a king who defends his people at the cost of his own life to meet the needs, the deepest needs of his people. And they rejected him. And the same Jesus comes to us and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. The coronation these people wanted wasn't what they got, but they got what they needed because they got Jesus, God's Messiah, Christ, the victor. So there's the coronation of the king, and then we have the confession of the king. This point is not as long as the last one, if you're keeping time. We are introduced to this other crowd in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness about him. This is the crowd we are introduced to in John 11:19. These are the many Jews who came to console Mary and Martha at the hearing of the death of Lazarus. And this crowd that we are introduced to in a very special way is a crowd who does something very peculiar. They're bearing witness about Jesus. Isn't it interesting? The reason the first crowd went to go see Jesus is because this crowd told them of what Jesus has done. This is what we see in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they heard he had done this sign. This sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. In this scene, we see we see the great marvel of Jesus. And this crowd can't do anything except bear witness to this Jesus. This is the one who is worthy of our praise. And this is exactly what Zechariah 9, 9, this is how it begins. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming. This crowd has seen the power of Jesus, and they can't do anything other than tell other people, go see Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, which crowd are we more like? Are we more like the crowd who rejects this Jesus because he doesn't fit into our little box of what we expect him to be? Or are we part of the crowd that has seen the power of Jesus Christ and can't do anything except point people to go see Jesus? Is our witness more about what Jesus has done for us or is our witness more about the kind of life you can expect to have if you follow this Jesus? Because look at what this crowd does. Look, look at the witness and the power that this crowd has. In verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing looking the whole world has gone after him. This is the power of the kingdom of God. 
This is the type of king we are called to follow. A king that doesn't just care about Israel's, the Israelites, the Jews, or his disciples. He cares about his kingdom that is going to cover the face of the world. This is our king. It's not a kingdom that's built upon revolution. It's a kingdom built on regeneration. On making people new in Christ. It's based upon the same profession that Nathaniel made in the very first chapter of John. You are the king. It's a kingdom that consists in setting the captives free, not enslaving others. It's a complete reversal of the worldly politics we see today. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. But we must never forget. We must never forget that even though this Jesus came riding in on a donkey, our Jesus, our King, will come again in battle. You see, the Jewish expectation wasn't completely wrong. They wanted a military victory. They just wanted it over the wrong people at the wrong time. For this is what John tells us in Revelation 19. An image of when Jesus will return. Then I saw heaven opened up and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes are like the flame of a fire, and his head are the diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the, in, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. For his mouth comes sharp as a sword with which will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine, wine presses of the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our king. Our king will make every knee bow before him, but not yet. Right now, our king has commissioned his people to be his witnesses, to draw the nations to himself. And then, when the nations are drawn, Jesus will fulfill this picture. This picture of these palm branches that these Jews misused. They use these palm branches politically, to serve their own purposes. But in Revelation 7, we see that there will be a great multitude that no one can number, and every nation from all tribes and people and languages will stand before the Lamb on His throne, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands, crying aloud, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our King will ride in triumph. You know why this is so important? When Zechariah is quoted here, in this time, they had no king. The people that Zechariah prophesied to had become lethargic. They were forgetting who they were. Christ Presbyterian Church, may we never forget who we are. May we never forget who our king is. May we never forget that our king saved us from our sins, but our king also won a decisive battle, and he will reign forever. And this is the king who invites us to the table, who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, enlarge our vision of who you are. Give us courage. Give us courage to bear witness about who you are and what you've done rather than bearing witness about who we are. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let us stand and sing.